3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundaji and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to other indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Up to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. And good morning on this Wednesday, October 18th. You're with your host, Patrick Morrow. I'm with Claudia Craig and Sanera Ahmed. Good morning. Good, good morning, everyone. Good morning, listeners. Hope you're well this morning. And thanks for tuning in to our show, the 3CR Breakfast Show on Wednesday. It's going to be a, a show this morning that's sort of split between um, discussions on the post-referendum situation as well as the Hamas-Israel situation and the plight of the Palestinians who are currently trying to evacuate their home. Yeah, it's uh, a pretty uh, scary time right now around the world. It's those images coming out of Israel and Gaza are, are quite frightening. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've probably try to uh, take off the uh, the news sometimes and just uh, try and relax from it a bit. And um, I like to turn the TV off sometimes. I don't know. It's just it's a bit scary right now with with it all. Yeah, it is very scary. You know, some other um, issues or uh, some other tragedies around the world got overshadowed um such as the afghanistan earthquake that happened um last week as well and um so far i think the the death uh you know there's been three earthquakes there but i think the death toll was about I'm not sure actually what the death toll is, but still, it's um, mm. very yeah, it's it's pretty tragic. Uh, tragic. And, yeah, and of course, we still have you know the war in full on pace in Ukraine. Yeah, Russia. that's so, that's kind of missed the headlines as well, Claudia. Absolutely, um, yeah, it was a massive week for politics and humanity. You'd have to say, um, both home and abroad, and 
yeah, so our thoughts are with communities um, who have loved ones in Palestine and Israel who are affected and, of course, with our First Nations listeners and First Nations communities who are affected by the outcome of the referendum um, in so many ways. Yeah, definitely. So as Claudia alluded to, we are going to be speaking about the referendum and we'll be uh, discussing that with uh, just looking at my run sheet there, we're going to be listen, listening, uh, speaking, to, listening to an interview that was had a few weeks ago with, from the Murdoch University from Western Australia with uh, Bep Uick. Uh, then we'll be speaking uh, to Catherine Sutton Brady from the University of Sydney. And then uh, later in the show, we'll be discussing uh, Palestine uh, with Nasser Masari and also a human rights lawyer discussing the pro Palestinian rally which occurred in Sydney last week. But Sonera, let's kick us off with those headlines. Yep. So first of all, um, in the news headlines today, um, some updates on the Israel-Gaza war. An Israeli airstrike has hit Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza City, where thousands of civilians are seeking medical treatment and shelter from the attacks. Gaza Health Ministry said that there were at least 500 casualties in the hospital blast, and a UN-run uh, and a UN-run school housing refugees has also been struck. The death toll has risen to over 4,000, including 1,400 people in Israel and over 2,000 Palestinians, while more than 14,000 have been injured, with the majority of those in Gaza. Humanitarian aid from Egypt arrives at the Rafa border, uh, the Rafa border crossing in Gaza. However, the Palestinian side is still closed due to airstrikes. It's unclear when they might pass through. However, Abdullah II, the King of Jordan, has said neither Jordan or Egypt are willing to accept Palestinian refugees from the war. U.S. President. And U.S. President Joe Biden is set to visit Israel today to show support for their war against Palestine as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agrees to let humanitarian aid reach besieged, Gaza besieged Gazans. And back at home, 222 Australian citizens have returned to Sydney on the first repatriation flight from Israel after being there during the attack by militant group Hamas. Another flight carrying more Australian citizens is due to arrive in Sydney from London tonight. And as for Australians in Gaza, there are still 45 trapped with limited access to water, electricity, fuel and food after Israel imposed a total siege on the territory. Now to you, Claudia. And The Guardian's political cartoonist of 40 years, Steve Bell, has been let go after he submitted a cartoon depicting Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu in what the media outlet claimed was an anti-Semitic way. According to media reports, The Guardian considered the cartoon as evoking the anti-Semitic pound-of-flesh trope, a reference to the character Shylock in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Bell denies this was the source of inspiration for the depiction, referencing instead a cartoon of US President Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War as the source. 
critics have derided the masthead's decision as creating a new low for satirical cartooning, with the spectator saying that the British tradition of satire is at stake. India's Supreme Court has declined the grant to legal recognition to same-sex marriages. Instead, the court agreed with the Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government that the issue should be decided by Parliament. The rejection came as a disappointment for LGBTQ plus people in India, which had hoped the Supreme Court judges would recognise their constitutional right to marriage equality. The five-judge bench of the Supreme Court were divided on the matter, and four separate judgments were written by the bench. Two of the judges had supported same-sex civil unions, but the majority verdict ruled against them. And in sport, the Socceroos are currently 1-0 up against New Zealand, with Harry Suter breaking the deadlock at Brentford. Excellent. We're going to take a little break, and then when we come back, we'll be hearing from Bep Ewink from Murdoch University, talking about the mental health impacts of the referendum on the voice to Parliament. Stay tuned. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
religion It's all the same when the ship is sinking We need more brothers if we're to make it We need more sisters if we're to save it And that was Blackfella, Whitefella by Jimmy Little. You are on 3CR 855 AM on your dial. If you want to listen to us, you can on Community Radio Plus app. Download the app, grab the app and listen to 3CR whenever you are. Well, now we're going to be listening to my conversation with Catherine Southern Beatty from the University of Sydney. We're going to discuss the Voice to Parliament referendum result. And she gave her perspective on why the Yes campaign failed and why the No campaign was successful across across Australia. We are now joined by Associate Professor of Marketing in Catherine Sutton Brady. How are you going this morning? Oh, I'm very good, thanks Patrick. How That's are you? Very good, Catherine, very good. So, Catherine, the voice referendum has been held um, on uh, Saturday evening and we saw the result come through at about 7.30 on Saturday. Um, firstly, what do you make of the result that occurred on uh, Saturday? Um, well, from a personal point of view, I find it disappointing, but from a professional point of view, it's not surprising what the outcome was. Yeah, definitely. Do you do you imagine that we will see uh, more of this? Uh, well, do you imagine that we'll see more of a situation um, in the coming weeks, a bit of a reflection on what what the voice is going to be in in the future? And do do you see, from a marketing point of view, a, a change of stance in terms of uh, one one how can we better uh, encourage people to get get across these issues? Well, I think the if if we look at both. 
um, the Yes and the No campaign over the last um, number of weeks, one of the biggest things that came out of that was the fact that the No campaign really ran on the idea of fear um, and basically making people feel as if this was going to be something that was going to impact them personally and that it wasn't going to be a good thing for them. And while the Yes campaign went with the whole inclusivity, the idea of a sense of belonging for everybody, of fairness, of the whole Aussie idea of, you know, giving everyone a fair go. Um, Unfortunately, we've seen in many years of political campaigning that fear campaigns tend to be a lot more effective um, Mm. because people are afraid of what's not known to them. And I think if we look at the Yes campaign, probably the biggest mistake they made was not giving people enough information about what Yes actually meant. And the No campaign were very much able to then target that fear and basically convince people that this wasn't the way to go. Yeah, what what do you make of that? Do you think the Yes campaign should have had a a spokesperson from the start? I felt like the No campaign, you kind of knew who the players who were involved. They had Jacinta Price, they had Warren Mundine, Lydia Thorpe was outspoken uh, as well. Do you think they needed someone just with a bit of substance? I know the Prime Minister was involved in the campaigning at the start, but do you think they needed someone? Um, yeah, I, and I, I think what they did was they left it too late. Yeah. Towards the end, they started getting, I mean, especially... I'm here in New South Wales. In New South Wales, you know, we had the grand final and straight afterwards, um, Nathan Cleary came out in support. And so if they had people like that on board earlier on, I think it would have made, it could, but it could have made a big difference. Yeah, that was, um, I was going to say as well, Catherine, I was in Sydney actually, uh, and listeners uh, might have heard this, I was in Sydney for a, a couple of weeks ago and that was just when Nathan Cleary announced that he was voting yes and um, the press up there were very much, oh my God, this is awesome, this is what the, the yes campaign needed and also I felt uh, walking around Surrey Hills where I was uh, staying, Catherine, it seemed to me like there was a, a bit of a poignance of voting yes but also giving people an idea of why to vote yes. I felt that was probably the most obvious um, reaction you could see from the referendum in terms of wanting to vote yes. While uh, And you also had no people there as well. So it was good. Like you, you had a bit more of a campaign uh, going for both sides. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think if we look at the different electorates, we'll see that the, the electorates that voted yes are the places, you know, like your Surrey Hills, um, you know, in, in Melbourne, um, Adam Brandt's electorate, I think they had the biggest yes vote in the country. Um, and I think in, in those electorates, what we did see was we did see a lot more of educating people about what it actually meant to vote yes. And I think that's where the campaign could have, the yes campaign could have done a lot better over time because I do think they left their run a bit late. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the misinformation, Catherine, and you saw this a lot uh, during the campaign, do you think that the No campaign was able to use a bit of the, the false truths, you know, in a sense, and people took that on uh, face value? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we saw here in Sydney, um, especially in the western suburbs, was um, a huge campaign on, on WeChat mm. um, targeting Chinese um, migrants and basically telling them that if they voted yes, that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders would be able to come and take their houses. 
Um, I mean, it's it's staggering to think that in this day and age, people can get away with misinformation like that. But unfortunately, we've seen it. You know, we've seen it with Brexit. We've seen it with, um, you know, the, the elections in the U.S. Because a lot of this is happening on um, social media and social media networks, it's not regulated to the same extent as our TV advertising would have been over the years. So, you know, previously it would have been very hard to get away with misinformation because there would have been regulation in place to say, no, you can't say that, that's not true. Whereas nowadays, basically you can say anything on the internet and it's very hard to have it policed. So I think in one sense the No campaign were very clever at, using um, platforms like that to actually get their message out and to build that fear that I talked about. Yeah. Do you think there should be better regulation in terms of trying to halt misinformation? Do you think governments... Absolutely. I mean, I think think moving forward, it's one of the things that really, um, you know, legislators are going to have to really think about because it just seems campaign after campaign, it's, it's getting worse. Um, and the, the level of misinformation is, is, is increasing. Yeah, definitely. Do you, do you think that um, that's something that I think will be the overall arc of this referendum? Do you think, that, think in looking back in, in history in, in, time, in years to come, we'll see a bit more of a discussion about how misinfo- misinformation started uh, in Australia? Um, I, I think so. And I mean, I think this is probably the first campaign where we've seen it so strongly. I mean, as I said, Brexit... Um, you know, the elections in the U.S., it, it's commonplace. But I think this is the first time we've really seen such a big misinformation campaign. Even in the marriage equality um, referendum, we didn't see as much misinformation. We did see some, but I think this time round we saw a lot more. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of that, no campaigns, spokespeople going in the future, I think Jacinta Price is one that possibly will have a higher role in the Liberal government? And where do you see her camp... Will her campaign be huge in the next election? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure because um, I actually listened to her speak on the radio yesterday morning and I think her rhetoric is one that's not going to resonate with a lot of people. Mm. Um, you know, she was talking about war and I don't think that's what we need moving forward. I think that's just really divisive. Um, and so I think... Um, even though she was, uh, you know, for the no campaign, she was great. <laughs> yeah. I, I think moving forward, you know, to to really, you know, either get a treaty or have a voice, I think there has to be, um, I, I don't know, not the word compromise, but I think there has to be um, a little less, aggression in the campaign mm, mm. Um, and I, I do think even though she at the moment appears to be a very powerful player I'm not sure moving forward that people will continue to um, agree with everything she says. Yeah definitely definitely. Do you think that um, the, the Yes campaign they're having a week of mourning uh, due to due to the loss um, and that's fair enough given they have to be, have a bit of a reflection it's a bit like a sporting contest Catherine you've got to reflect and, and rebuild and regrow. Do you think that those uh, campaigners what do you think they'll reflect on the most in terms of how could have they gone differently in the in the referendum? I think what they will reflect on is the fact that 
they, in a sense, misread the the, the people and misread. Um, I, I, in, in one way, I think it's the timing of their campaign. Mm. I do seriously think if they had gotten more people on board, as we talked about earlier on, that they could have built built a bigger groundswell. Um, and I do think that for them as well, finding ways of targeting that misinformation and getting the correct information out there would have been really important. And I don't think they did enough to counter it. Yeah. Um, you know, I really don't think, I mean, as you said, they didn't have a certain spokesperson. So there wasn't anybody coming out and saying, hang on a second, what those guys are saying is not actually correct. Mm. Um, so there was no there was no checks and balances. Um, and so the no campaign were allowed to say whatever they liked. And, and the yes campaign just didn't counter it because they just felt that, oh, you know, Aussies are the kind of people who are going to give people a fair go, so they'll vote yes. And I think they, they were they were too complacent. And I think, in a sense, that's probably what they reflect on, is their complacency and the fact that they left the run too late. Yeah. And Catherine, do you, where, do you, where do you see the next 12 months in terms of campaigns across the country? You know, we're going to probably see a couple of, elect, uh, there'll be a few elections in the in the future, state elections, if I'm just reflecting on it. Do you think that the campaigns will have that misinformation feel? Or do you think that because it will not be a referendum, because it'll be an, an election, so it'll be two parties, do you think there'll be, it'll be better in stopping that misinformation? I, I think so, and I mean, I think, I mean, as I said, we do see misinformation in, in regular campaigns but um, in, in Australia, but never to the extent we've seen this time round. And I do think um, in, you know, in, in local campaigns or, you know, state campaigns, there tends to be someone who counters that misinformation. So mm. if someone puts out a pamphlet about something, someone will, you know, counteract it and say, hang on a second, this isn't true. Um and so it does then put some doubt in the mind of the of the voters as to okay, who who do I believe? Whereas we didn't see that in this referendum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Catherine, also just give us an idea about your work for the listeners. Where can they go if they want to find your uh, work on marketing? Yeah, I'm at the University of Sydney Business School. So if you um, just Google me, you'll find me there. Um, that's that's where I'm at. Perfect. Well, thanks very much, Catherine. I really appreciate your time. It was great chatting about The Voice and we'll be loving to chat more about campaigns and uh, other marketing tricks and tips uh, that, that will occur uh, during the next 12 months. Okay, great. Thanks for your time. That's okay. Perfect. And that was Catherine Sutton-Brady from the University of Sydney. Uh, you're on 3CR 855 AM. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on from November the 3rd. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between November the 3rd to the 10th will go in the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter.
You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. listening to 3CR Breakfast and it's now almost it's 7.28am on Wednesday 18th of October 2023 um, as we know you know the voting for the referendum came to an end last Saturday but many indigenous people have been impacted by the referendum regardless of the result as the voice debate took a toll on many indigenous people's mental health Experts have witnessed reports of increased psychological distress from community members and there are also concerns about racism and scrutiny on social media causing young First Nations people distress. We are now going to listen to a conversation previously aired on 3CR Breakfast back in June. Claudia spoke with Bep, uh, uh, Claudia spoke with Bep Wink. Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University about the impact of the voice to parliament debates and what a no result would look like for Indigenous Australians in the the lead up to the referendum. Let's take a listen as Bep Oink first shares a little about herself and her work. So I'm a, a proud Noongar woman living here in Buraloo, WA. Um, I'm the Dean of the School of Indigenous Knowledges at Murdoch University, which is actually a new, a new school for the university. And I do research into both the impacts of racism on Aboriginal teenagers' mental health and how non-Aboriginal adults can prevent racism, but also the well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander LGBT young people. Um, and so looking at how those uh, two identities can intersect to actually um, create some vulnerabilities for wellbeing. Thank you so much. I wanted to start off by asking you about the voice to parliament and the referendum, which are top of the national political agenda. But before we go into the specifics about this referendum, I just wondered if you can tell us what it is about referendums generally that can potentially create an environment of harm for the people who are their subjects. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real, um, there's a real history, I suppose, of the 1967 referendum with within Aboriginal communities in Australia. Um, that's kind of a reference point, I think, we're going to when we're thinking about the national conversation. Um, and I think what we saw with the plebiscite and now with this upcoming vote is you become everyone's topic, right? So your life and the destiny of your life and your community's life is really out for open discussion Um, and oftentimes you're not involved in that discussion and you're not Mm. aware that it's about to happen Um, and that can be quite confronting it can be quite confronting when you're the topic of the lunchtime conversation and people start expressing some opinions that aren't necessarily favorable Um, so it can be really disrupting to people's well-being um, and just a real shock to the system of um, being discussed at such a national level. 
How does that then translate into stress? I mean, what sort of impacts are you seeing or are we likely to see affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a result of the conversations being had around them? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think the impacts we saw from the plebiscite is that people who are exposed to the no campaign or were living in high no vote regions had a lot of what they called um, the kind of stress around that vote. I think likewise, uh, hearing conversations about yourself and really your place in the country. So as an Aboriginal person, um, it's really personal and the vote really gets to the crux of do we actually believe, in my opinion, in Aboriginal sovereignty and there's a place for Aboriginal people to have self-determination in this country? And that really gets to people's sense of dignity, their sense of their right to live as how they want to live in Australia. And when that's constantly being questioned or debated in really uh, ways that aren't sensitive to the topic, that is just an added stress that's going into people's lives. It might not be really obvious. It might be kind of chipping away at us subconsciously, but it's there and everyone in our community is picking up on it. Um, so it's definitely a stress factor that's going to increase over the next few months. Mm. Well, we'll talk a little bit later about how non-Indigenous Australians can be sensitive when they're having those conversations and therefore mitigate against some of that potential harm. But I wanted to ask you, what part is racism playing in this debate and also the, the way in which it then affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Yeah, that, that's a really, it's a really tricky one because I actually think one of the silver linings, I suppose, of this this conversation is, other, other than having a conversation around recognition in the constitution, is actually bringing to forefront this conversation of racism in Australia that we're really not good at having, right? Australians really detest talking about racism in general um, and it's this big, bad, dirty word. Um, the research we do and talking with young people about experiences of daily racism is that it is so prevalent in our lives and it and it's not just the racial slurs and the discriminations it's things like um well you guys should just get over it right we're all one country right it's those notions that really we deny the the history of australia or we deny that it still has an impact on aboriginal people so that has real racial undertones um, and people don't often associate that with the nastiness that they associate with racism but the impact is still the same um, it's still very stressful. What we find with young people as well is this notion that they're treated as if all Aboriginal people are the same, right, and everyone would have the same view on this and that Aboriginal Australia is one, one homogenous group of people. Um, and so likewise with The Voice, assuming that people don't have different reasons for how they're going to vote or different views on what the vote means um, is also a form of race racism in the form that it homogenizes us and doesn't see us as a complex community with complex views. Exactly. And you mentioned the marriage equality plebiscite. I believe you and your colleagues have written about the experiences of LGBTQIA plus people in the marriage equality plebiscite in terms of what we can learn from that as we proceed to the Indigenous Voice referendum. Before we hear about those lessons, can you tell us what is known about how LGBTQI plus people experience the plebiscite yeah. and the processes and debates that went with it, the conversations that you're sort of talking about now in this context? Absolutely. So from the research we looked at, it's 
um, you know, people who are exposed to no level, no type campaigns during the plebiscite had higher psychological distress and just had general stress leading up to the vote, psychological distress leading up to the vote because of being part of that national conversation and essentially having to hear homophobic remarks come out, you know, sometimes from colleagues who you would think were supportive, but when it really becomes to having the conversation, people's kind of true opinions come out. So our our view is that while it's really important to have this national conversation, as it was with the plebiscite, to be able to have the vote, it needs to be done in a sensitive way that recognises that you're talking about people's lives, people's rights to live as they want in, in both types of situations. Um, and being up for public debate, you know, we could all put ourselves in the shoes of someone who is up for public debate and their life up for public debate um, without any protections around that can be quite damaging. And I know you work at the intersection of gender and uh, indigeneity. How helpful or relevant is the information from the, the plebiscite experience about a group that are marginalised by sex and gender when we come to seek to understand the ways of supporting Indigenous people I think it's really important from the plebiscite perspective, we have that data to show that if people were supported or had social supports around them, that helped them get through the vote or any kind of vote-related stress. So we can learn that. Um, it's this, it's a similar parallel that we've pointed out when we're discussing it in terms of being part of a marginalised community, but the majority community essentially is making that choice for you. Um, so the majority of non um uh, LGBT people were making decisions around same-sex marriage or marriage equality and likewise it'll be non-Aboriginal people who are the majority voters in the upcoming referendum. Um, so there's parallels that can be taken around how we su support minority communities um, and likewise from our research of people who live within that quote-unquote double minority how we can those minority communities can support and rally for each other during this time. And what are the unique aspects of the referendum on the voice that will adversely or potentially adversely affect Indigenous Australians. What are the what are the areas where we can't use the experience of the plebiscite, um, and we're sort of navigating new territory? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's like I said earlier. Is this one is really about to me, and and from from many community members I've talked about is our right to live. As, as we want, as to have self-determination. So there's parallels to um, the plebiscite. But when we're coming to change the constitution, um, we're looking at, a, you know, a different level of um, uh, legal process that we're voting on, but also looking at how we recognise First Nations Australians in Australia um, in, and in conversations around what Australian um, nationhood looks like going forward. So it's, it's very impactful in terms of if we... If we say that we don't have a place or a recognition in the Constitution and a right to determine um, how we live our lives and policy that affect our lives, that's a very strong message that's being sent to Aboriginal people about their future in Australia. I'm particularly worried about the impact it's going to have for young people and how they see themselves as Australians and First Nations Australians. Um, so I think there's some ripple effects um, that aren't being talked about enough, I suppose, in terms of what the outcome of a no vote would be. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We've been hearing from Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University, Bep Ewink, about the impact of the voice referendum on Indigenous Australians. 
Bep explains that some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders feel stress and discomfort due to the constant debate around their lives in the lead-up to the referendum. Similar impacts were felt by the LGBT community during the equal marriage plebiscite. There is much to learn from that experience. Listening to Bep, I can't help wonder how young Indigenous people are faring in all this. They might not be old enough to vote, but there's a lot at stake here for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Bep has told me that much of her work is centred on the experiences of Indigenous youth, so I ask her what impact the referendum is having on them. Absolutely right, and then I think young people being left a lot out of the conversation when we're talking about this just because they're not voting, so just because they're not 18, doesn't mean they're not at home hearing conversations between family members, certainly doesn't mean they're not seeing stuff online um, and they're not reading comments and they're also not tuned into the media um, and hearing things. So while it's not directly going to impact their behaviour because they're not being able to um, have a vote, we have to be aware that this is the implicit messaging we're sending young people about their place in Australia. And they may not have the same level of um, developmental understanding of, of why people may vote yes or no. So in my opinion, all they're hearing is um, you don't have a place in Australia with a, with a no vote. You don't have a place as a First Nations person. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's, there's Uluru Youth Yarn. So there are programs that are going around and deliberately trying to talk to young people about this process so they have a chance to air some of their concerns, air some of their worries, um, develop some strategies for what might happen on the outcome of a no vote or a yes vote or what that might mean. Um, there's also Ray Lovett's team at ANU who, who received some of the national funding we were talking about, about following up on um, Aboriginal communities' wellbeing. So it'd be really fantastic to make sure that young people are included in that research and those priorities going forward, because even though, like you said, they're not voting, they're definitely hearing this messaging. We're listening to Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University, Bep Ewink, speak about the impact of the Voice to Parliament debates on Indigenous Australians in the lead up to the referendum. Before my time with Bep finished, I wanted to pick up on something she mentioned earlier in our conversation, the impact of the No campaign on Indigenous Australians, and perhaps more crucially, what impact a no outcome might have? Either just exposure to some of the, frankly, racist rhetoric around the no vote around, and, and you know, we talk about this people saying it's going to be divisive and the commentary that the vote is divisive, it's not really tapping into the, the large amount of work that community has done to try and come together on this issue or at least hear um, diverse opinions on this issue. Um, so just leading up to the vote, the the no campaign tends to have the impact. We, we imagine it will have the impact of negatively impacting people's well-being. If it is a no voice, a, a no vote, if that's what comes, then I think we need to be really careful about explaining what that does mean to young people particularly, but in Aboriginal communities, how do we regather from that? Um, you know, is if for people who were voting no, for Aboriginal people who do vote no, giving them space to be able to explain their positions and where they think we should go post a vote. Um, so we need those opportunities to be able to come together and have those discussions without those discussions, I suppose, being co-opted by people who want to put forward an agenda that isn't in support of Aboriginal self-determination. And I believe $10 million has been um, put aside by the federal government to support mental health programs specifically in relation to impacts of the referendum. 
Are you aware of work being done to, as you say, gather people together if there is a no outcome? So, no, I'm not aware of anything at the moment. It's a it's a relatively new announcement and I was talking to a colleague um, who, who's part of um, uh, the Nacho organisation who received the funding and I know a couple of weeks ago they were still waiting to hear how that funding would be doled out. So I think um, at least in, in WA, from a WA perspective, it's early days. Um, I do think people have been talking about this leading up to that announcement, so the announcement is welcome, but you know, since the start of the year, at least, we've been flagging and the conversations I'm having in community is flagging how we're going to deal with, um, you know, comments leading up to the vote and the outcome of the vote. Um, so it's a really welcome funding. I'm not aware of how people are going to be spending those. I would encourage, um, you know, people to who, who are in control of that funding to really have those opportunities to have those community conversations. I think we have strength through those conversations to do them in sensitive ways, but we can't have people feeling isolated um whichever way the vote goes um we we need to come together as a community to support each other or to celebrate or to plan a way forward um and not have some not have this vote as an as a reason to be divided and on an individual and community level what are some of the ways in which non-indigenous people who as you point out are the majority of voters uh what are the things that we can do to mitigate the adverse impacts of the referendum process. You talked about communication and sensitivity. Um, maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, I think it's first and foremost, I think it's really important that non-Aboriginal people find their own reason for why they are voting, whichever way they decide to vote. Um, so I think you need to have a personal reason. It can't just be, well, I heard this, da, da, da. I would really encourage everyone to interrogate their views on this issue. Once you do, I think you would understand that there's real there's a real depth to this issue that's being overlooked currently in, in mainstream debates. Um, there's a real solid question about Indigenous self-determination here. And if you can express that to people um, when you're having conversations with colleagues, with um, friends, with community members around your personal beliefs, then I think that comes from a more empathetic stance. Um, I think, you know, this, this whole idea of conversations in the workplace, conversations around the dinner table are all fantastic. Um, prefacing that uh, this can be a distressing topic and likely is a distressing topic. So asking permission to talk about something, if there's Aboriginal people involved in that conversation, you're not just going to launch into a conversation around the vote. Um, you know, asking permission, um, talking, asking your colleagues' views or your friends' or community members' views and, and how they're going, checking in with them to see how they're going. Um, and for young people as well, I mean, I think talking to our children around do they know what's going on? Do they understand what's going on? Are they hearing something at school? Are they seeing something online? This is a really good opportunity to educate them around processes and um, current conversations in Australia. Thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I just I think it's fantastic to see the funding coming out. And again, I would really encourage, if not, uh, as well as the community conversations, I think we also need to think about some of our older generations. So we've talked about young people, but we need to remember that for our older generations, people who were around um, during some real um, divisive years in Australian policy, this could be really isolating for them too. And oftentimes our older generations are quite alone. 
Um, and so I would encourage everyone just to check in with their aunties and uncles and, and grandmas, et cetera, because um, I think the, the national conversation could bring up quite some traumatic things for them. So we need to be looking into their well-being as well. You're listening to Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we just looked back at a conversation about the referendum's impact on mental health of First Nations Australians that was aired on Breakfast back in June. And um, you heard Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University, Bep Uing, speaking to Claudia about the impact of the Voice to Parliament debate debates on Indigenous Australians in the lead-up to the referendum back in June. If any of these issues mentioned in this segment have raised concerns for you, you can call Lifeline on 131114 and for mob-only support, 13 Yarn on 139276, LGBTQI+, LGBTQIA plus listeners can also wish to contact Q Life on 1-800-184-527. It'll also be good to keep in mind that Indigenous ES advocates have called for a week of silence after the results have come out. Um, Now we will go to a song. I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a I paint many pictures and they ask me what for What's your motivation, ayy I'm flying higher than the ace of space Yeah, they mad at the black kid Cause I do it my way Wanna cuff my black wrist and those are my compadres But I know they can never find me Cause I'm that early bird getting at the ride I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason If everybody got one, why they bother with my Fragile leaders always follow the top What you finna do to get paid? New chains on the same old slave Think we get ahead, then they go and pull us backwards Back to the mission, no more funds, just rations Back when these whips are get to cracking But I'm not early, but and you just crash I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason I've been up early in the morning Wake up to the sunrise and my first bone Everybody got a reason Everybody got a reason
that uh, and what you just listened to was a song called Reasons by the group Birds, the artist Birds. And now we'll be going on to Claudia. Yes, now turning to the situation in Palestine and Israel, 3CR has a long history of standing in solidarity with Palestinians and 3CR's Palestine Remembered program is Australia's only English language radio program dedicated to Palestine and its people. We're going to bring you an excerpt from last Saturday's program, their first since the declaration of war by Israel following Hamas's attack. The host of the show is Nasser Mashni. Nasser is the son of a Palestinian refugee and the co-founder of Australians for Palestine. He begins his reflection here. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. We're doing this show live today because we just knew how dynamic the situation would be in Gaza. I'm going to share some of my reflections, but if some, if you want to call in and share some of yours, or you know, have an opportunity to uh, to share some of your pain, and uh, perhaps we can have a virtual or uh, over the air hug. I don't need to uh, explain to our listeners just how dire the situation is in Gaza. Overnight, the UN was told by the Israeli army that half of Gaza was going to have to move to the other half. There are two and a bit million Palestinians in Gaza. 1.1 million of them were told to move south. The population density in Gaza is already amongst the highest on earth. 5,500 people per square kilometre. When and if those million people manage to get south, remembering that the roads have been bombed, um, they're, they're, you know, most people don't have fuel for their cars. You know, I've seen some of the vision this morning on Al Jazeera, people on the back of... Uh, carts drawn by donkeys. There'll end up being 2 million people inside of 180 square kilometres. And I often talk about what that means as a population density for where we might live. Gaza fits 30 times inside Melbourne. 30 times. If Australia had the population density of Gaza before the evacuation south, Australia would have a population density of a population of 42 billion that would mean that we'd have in excess of 80 billion people in Australia once everybody's jammed into the south. Israel's made no bones as to what they plan to do. They've been very clear that they're going to clear the north of Gaza. Um, and what that looks like, according to Benjamin Netanyahu, is perhaps a uh, city of tents. He claimed uh, in all of his bravado that he would turn Gaza into a deserted island. Palestinians in Gaza uh, have, to fa have, have been facing a horrible metric. Uh, do they actively participate in another ethnic cleansing? Are they going to willingly walk south? And what does walking south mean? What does walking south look like? Walking south means you are hoping that something is going to be there for you, that somebody might open the door for you, that there might be, that there might be a room in a family member's house that you might be able to jam your family in there. Already in that mass panic to move south, 
uh, Israel has bombed uh, a truck. They killed and incinerated something of the order of somewhere between 15 and 40 people who had taken literally the order to move south for safety and it ended up being their own death certificates. The Israeli Defence Minister has called Palestinians human animals and he's told his generals that they should operate without restraint. Genocide is not an easy word. It's a very loaded word. But cutting the power, food, medicine, water off to two million captive people is a genocide. Israel has created the world's largest open-air prison camp, as described by David Cameron when he was Prime Minister of Israel, of, of the United Kingdom. Israel's now turned that into a concentration camp. The death toll is over 600 children. There are 50,000 women in Gaza who are currently pregnant. 5,500 of them are going to give birth in the next four weeks. 1,000 children in maternity wards. 100 of them in uh, cribs with no power. The death toll will be in the tens of thousands of people. And Western governments have stood idly by, and I won't even say idly, because idly means that they just let it happen. They're active participants in what is going to be a Palestinian genocide. We are bearing witness to the greatest moral failure of Western governments ever. After World War II, we said never again, and never again should have been for all of us. Any legitimacy the West has to moral superiority, to democracy, to human rights, to international law, is completely and absolutely bankrupt. And Palestinians will never forgive them. We will never forget. Our supporters will never forgive them and never forget. How they stood by and let an entire population suffer and die and burn. If you can, please come tomorrow to the State Library and join us for a day of action, a day to commemorate those that have fallen, a day to share your pain with a fellow uh, fellow supporters of humanity, of uh, caring for Palestinians, uh, and to tell the Palestinians that whilst the world may have no moral compass, that, that we maintain ours. I've been speaking to politicians, I've been on every TV show or radio show that I could be on, begging. I, I'm, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure if it comes across as me begging, but I'm I not sure that I could do much more than lay myself prostate, hoping to humanise our kids. The sad reality is we're living in a country now with a media that doesn't allow a Palestinian, an Australian Palestinian, uh, the opportunity to mourn a Jewish death. I've endeavoured 
to express as best I can my sympathy for the deaths of uh, innocent deaths in in Israel, because all life is sacrosanct. All life is precious. Every baby is precious. Nobody's pain is different when you're mourning the death of an innocent, whether that child died at the end of a uh, a masked gunman or whether that child died because an Israeli pilot dropped a one-ton bomb on a residential building. The pain is 100% and it's 100% the same. The fact that we can't... Um, we can't have space or the space has been denied us to call to be able to grieve together is a measure of the level of inhumanity that and degradation of our humanity that has happened because of western media complicity but also also the complicity of western governments that haven't held israel to account for 75 years for 75 years palestinians have been denied their right to self-determination they've had their humanity stripped from them and we've got to the point now in the western uh, in western media where attending a rally in solidarity with the palestinian people is described by uh, the western media or mainstream media here in australia as uh, akin to supporting Hamas. We're not even afforded an opportunity to be able to get together and show solidarity, mourn together, without be, being dehumanized and delegitimized. Palestinians are humans too. Our babies' lives matter as much as anybody else's lives matter. And the fact that we're having to explain that in Australia is disgusting. A couple of kids did a unnecessary action in burning a flag. I don't condone that. I understand the frustration um, the, and, and a desire to want to express an outrage at that, but there's no space for that. Today we need to be respectful of it. There were unconfirmed chants of some really horrible anti-Semitic stuff, and there should be absolute condemnation of those chants there is no room no room within our organization for any sort of racism homophobia anti-semitism islamophobia any sort of hate the movement for liberation for palestine has to be is an anti-colonial anti-racist intersectional struggle for justice for all what unites Palestinians and peoples of the world all over is our fight against imperialism, Western hegemony, capitalism. The world is better when we all stand together. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And we've just heard from Nasser Mashni, host of 3CR's Palestine Remembered Show, speaking about the situation in Palestine following the outbreak of war between Hamas and Israel and appealing for support for Palestine. 
You can listen to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning on 3CR at 9.30am. And to catch the rest of last week's program, you can go to the website www.3cr.org.au forward slash Palestine. Now, just to mention that the rally referred to in the excerpt was one that took place last Sunday, but there is another rally planned for this Sunday, October the 22nd in Nam. That will take place at 12 noon at the State Library of Victoria. In other events, the Northern Suburbs Speak Out for Palestine is holding an event tomorrow evening at 5pm for Community Solidarity with Palestine. That's tomorrow, Thursday, 19th of October, gathering at 5pm at the Bell Street Reserve, corner of Sydney Road and Bell Street, Coburg. And the organisers have put a call out for anyone who can help make this rally safe and successful. So if you're interested in volunteering to assist with marshalling, please get in touch with one of the organisers and we'll put contact details in our show notes. And there will also be a vigil for Gaza held not this Friday, but next Friday, the 27th of October in Federation Square from 6 to 8 p.m. So we'll put the links to those events in our show notes. We'll also be adding uh, the link for donations for anyone who wants to help out uh, in that way. And of course, if anything in this segment has caused uh, upset or you want to seek help, lifeline number is 131114. We're going to go to a song now and when we come back, I'll be speaking with David Mejia Canales, a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, about the recent and upcoming pro-Palestinian rallies and the legal right to protest. But here's a track from Barker. This is Bow Down. Look, I ain't come to beat around about the dispossession. I'm pent up with aggression bigger than your comprehension. Bloodline stretches right back. That Mali brah, and you got points, but they ain't even valid. Khan, I go to war every day, my black is uniform. You say I'm fair skin, I say you're too gone. I got these pictures from my matriarchs, they skin dark, and you ain't even know shit about it being hard. They used to beat them and then rape them, then they took they kids. Gone, tell me why I ain't got trauma in this life I live. I see my brothers get ripped by the hands of white pigs. I even went on a trip, but I came back from it. Salute the matriarchy, you ain't fucking with this. Salute to all my titters who is handling biz. We ain't backing down to no patriarchal shit. We come from strong bloodlines, we was raised to quit. Bow down. Hey, bow down. Hey, bow down. Hey, they used to look down on me, look who's looking up now. Bow down. Titter came to do what she came to do, son No pity for this cat, says a nuisance You ain't fucking with this black fella movement 
If you think he really is, keep it moving. Boogie down with my mob, I keep it groovy. If you got me in a grip, you gon' lose me. I ain't sorry for the way that music moves me. Sorry, not sorry, baby, I am ruthless. You wanna get something straight with me? I walk the hard road when no one was there for me. I pick myself up, I got a lot of strength in me. And that's real talk, you should be fucking scared of me. Now I'm all up on my grind, ain't no stopping my foot. I got that marker in my bones and it's calling me home. Just wait a little bit, then this did a big gone. But I got a presses on my plate and I got my feet on, I put my feet on them. I stomp on the PM, I give a fuck about a government. My people don't go then I don't follow white law, run the yellow RE and that's me, bro. I'm back and G, I love a white B. Bow down. You're back listening to 3CR Breakfast and we're continuing our discussion about the situation in Gaza, Israel and the pro-Palestinian rallies that have taken place around the country. There were rallies all last week and there will continue to be rallies this weekend with one million Gaza residents being asked to evacuate their homes before an expected ground war offensive by Israel. The rallies have been met with strong police response, particularly in New South Wales, where the state police have launched a high visibility police operation known as Operation Shelter in the name of public safety but which has made many protesters feel their right to political demonstration has been curtailed. We are joined now by senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, David Miha-Kanalis, who will tell us exactly what are citizens' rights to protest, why they are an important part of a liberal democracy like Australia, and why the actions of police marshalling protest gatherings are being condemned by human rights groups. Good morning, David. Good morning, Claudia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Breakfast. David, can you start off by just explaining uh, clearly what is the right to protest and where it is enshrined in our law? Of course. So uh, the, the right to protest, which is you know the ability for us to speak up publicly and draw attention to a cause and agitate for change, is an essential component of our democracy. And it is such a fundamental human right because so many of us owe our human rights more to protest than we do to politicians because it, protest is how we make sure that our other human rights are activated and protected. The right to protest is protected under international law in the many of the um, legal instruments that Australia is a signatory to, but it also receives some protection under some state laws 
in 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 uh, jurisdictions that have human rights act like like Victoria, and there are also uh, protections in our constitution for political communication. So the the right to protest itself is not protected in the constitution, but there is some protection for folks who might want to speak out about political issues, because the constitution establishes a system of democratic government. And without political and free political communication between citizens, then that democratic system is undermined. Exactly. And I think um, it's uh, important to sort of, I suppose, emphasise that this is one of the foundations of Australia's democracy and what separates a liberal democracy from a regime that uh, doesn't give these rights to its citizens so we've seen this happening all around the world in other um, countries that aren't democratic, where citizens' rights are taken away. So, yeah, it's really important that, that, that we recognise it. Absolutely. And look, you know, the, the, pro, the protest movement, protest movements more broadly, have achieved some fantastic things in this country. We've saved the Franklin River, the apology to the stolen generations, the advancement of queer rights by, you know, People forget that Mardi Gras started as a protest, except now it is an enormous party. So attending a protest is a way for everyone to have their voices heard and participate in public debate, especially those voices that are often cut out of public debate. And also filling the gap for what isn't uh, dealt with by politicians and what's not being addressed. This is a, a chance for people to, to, to say what they want and what they believe in. It is just important to note, Claudia, too, that it is peaceful protest that is protected. And the word peaceful there doesn't mean that a protest is free from, you know, general argy-bargy or, or obstruction of vehicles. It just means protest that does not descend into actual violence that causes harm. And the protests that we have seen, particularly in New South Wales and, of course, in Victoria, um, with, with the pro-Palestine rallies, those rallies have been peaceful, despite what the New South Wales Premier might have said. In, in New South Wales, you had a situation where it's an unrelated few, people who were not known to the protest organisers, turned up and, and said some, chanted some anti-Semitic slogans that we condemn, and I think all people condemn anti-Semitism in the strongest possible terms, but you do not punish everybody and remove their right to collectively and peacefully gather just because of the actions of an unrelated few. Yeah, so let's um, stay on the topic of, of that rally. Even before that particular rally, and we're talking about the rally that took place uh, at Sydney Opera House last Monday, um, even before that rally took place, the New South Wales police were trying to discourage people from gathering, why were they taking that stance even before the yeah, rally had look, taken place? That's right, and it was it was quite um, it was quite a uh, quite a fast moving situation. And I you know really want to emphasise that what happened there is that uh, a small number of people who were unrelated to the protest um, made some chants that were violent, non peaceful, and potentially unlawful. But what happened there is that the police uh, and and in, also, the, the Premier of New South Wales down, including the police minister, their reaction was so heavy-handed and a far overreach, uh, where they actually, uh, in, you know, sort of invoked um, that the police should have some really restrictive powers to limit not just the the protests that were being planned for later that week, but any any future protests 
uh, particularly insofar when it relates to um, Palestinian people uh, wanting to gather and, and get, you know, get attention to what's happening on their homeland. So particularly in New South Wales, you have a, a situation where anyone who, who protests without authorization that is, that without police authorization, that doesn't mean that the protest is unlawful. It just means that the protest have not, uh, the police have not authorized it. They risk a jail jail time and a, and a twenty two thousand dollar fine, and that is undemocratic. And weaponizing these these laws for for Palestinian communities, um, it must, that that must not happen in this really critical moment while they are raising awareness of what is happening in their home. Yeah, so can we stay on um, that subject? Um, is that a particular situation in New South Wales? Um, do other states have similar laws which are as tough? Yeah, it, it is a situation around the whole eastern seaboard of the country where um, states like Queensland, uh, as well as Victoria, uh, New South Wales and South Australia, Tasmania, they've all introduced some incredibly, incredibly punitive anti-protest laws that are that are really targeting climate activism and some of the more disruptive climate protests that we've seen. The, pro- the laws look very different around um, the states. In Victoria, they're usually just targeted towards very specific sites like logging poops. But uh, in New South Wales and South Australia and in Tasmania, those laws are incredibly broad. They're very, very vague, and they have incredible um, penalties for breaches. So these laws, we argue that they are not democratic. They have no place in a system of democracy that values the right of people to kind of get together and, and agitate for change. But it is particularly terrible in New South Wales with up to a $22,000 fine just for blocking a road. Um, it is not a, you know, it's not a very convoluted um uh, kind of sentence, I mean, uh, 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 kind of crime that we're talking about here, it is for blocking a road and that could have a maximum uh, penalty of $22,000. It's outrageous. Mm. And is there any legal actions that, you know, organisations such as yourself uh, or activists can take to reduce that type of law, to change yeah, it, absolutely. challenge yeah, it? Yeah, of course. Absolutely right. At the moment, that the New South Wales law is is being taken. It's actually before the New South Wales Supreme Court. The argument there is that that law does not facilitate is not compatible with our constitutional right to freedom of communication. And there's some excellent lawyers from the Environment Defenders Office who are taking that case right now. Uh, activists are also incredibly um, incredibly organised in, in, in advocating for the winding back of these laws all over the place, from Victoria, Queensland, everywhere. Um, but the problem is that there isn't a political will to do anything about it. So the Human Rights Law Centre, in partnership with activists and, and other organisations, we're doing a lot of advocacy and also considering any legal challenges to these laws because of how restrictive they are on our right to protest. Mm, it really seems to be a trend to pushing the public safety um, sort of argument, but at the same time eroding the the rights of people who are not doing anything wrong at all and, in fact, uh, speaking out for really important causes. That, that's correct. And, and any action that does limit the right to protest, because it can be limited, you know, the, the awful sort of situation that we saw in Sydney, that is not protected 
under the right to protest, you know, the people chanting any sort of racist slogans. So the, the right to protest can be limited, but the limitation has to be very, very narrow and targeted. It can't be just banning everyone's right to protest because of the action of an unrelated few. That, that even on its, on its face of it doesn't make any sense. That's not what justice looks like. So we, we need to be very careful. Um, well, sorry, I should say politicians need to be very careful as to how they talk about protests, but we also need to make sure that we, we fight any erosion of our right to protest because it is so important in our democracy. Yeah, and the other aspect of um, the police response to the rally, they immediately after that Sydney rally um, set up this operation, as I mentioned, which uh, was to ensure public safety, as they said. So we then saw 1,000 people deployed across Sydney, including officers from the Police Transport Command, Traffic and Highway Patrol Command, Public Order and Riot Squad, the Operation Support Group, the, a mounted unit, a dog unit, and a police air unit. Um, so a really extraordinary... <laughs> Uh, number of people um, out there surveilling the situation. But the other aspect of it was that the police sought to use extraordinary powers to stop and search any pro-Palestinian activist who, who turned out to protest. What can you tell us about that aspect of the police's actions? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it just sort of goes without saying that these actions are incredibly um, heavy-handed. I was going to the, the Sydney rally, and when I saw that unbelievable cordon of riot police and mounted police and police of any type of vehicle, I turned right back around because I feared for, for my safety. Um, you know, I, I think that ultimately police did not rely on these emergency powers that would have required anybody who, in a designated area, that if they did not produce identification, that they could be committing a crime, that they could be stopped and searched and frisked without any kind of uh, kind of cause. It could just happen because the police officer wished it to be so. These powers are absolutely extraordinary, and they were last used during the Cronulla riots uh, in New South Wales. But the the thing is, is that this incredible heavy-handed police response to, to what was a very peaceful rally, I must stress, it was an incredibly well-attended rally, the same thing in Melbourne, the same thing in other capitals. These rallies were very well-attended and they were peaceful. And they were peaceful not because the police were there. They were peaceful because the organisers um, did everything that they could to make sure that they would remain that way. Often, when you mobilise an incredible police response, what actually happens is that causes fear and panic in people. And the, the mobilisation of police resources, which is incredible for something like this, um, we, we really need to start asking questions as to whether the police, this incredible policing response, is actually what we would want to see in a democratic society. As we know, we know that for police coming into contact with people of colour, with Aboriginal folks, with black folks, those interactions don't go well. So when we mobilise so many police on the streets, uh, we really need to ask ourselves as to whether that is the best use of our community resources. And we also need to, or politicians need to be um, asking whether those sorts of actions and the presence of police in such huge numbers and in an intimidating uh, form... Um, 
becomes counterproductive to the the need to build trust in communities and to have collegiate relationships with authorities, not ones where there's this binary of, you know, between them and us and uh, a sense of fear and a sense of authoritarianism. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And I think um, politicians also really need to ask themselves why they are using such ugly rhetoric, particularly towards very peaceful protests, or at least peacefully organised protests, because the moment you start demonising people's ability to gather collectively and and bring attention to a cause, that's when we start sliding into a place that we, we do not want to be in. So I think um, politicians have a lot of questions to ask of themselves, as well as police services around the country. Well, thank you very much for um, articulating that uh, for our listeners. Um, before we go, there are more rallies uh, organised for this weekend. Um, do you have a message to protesters uh, to put them in a place where they feel comfortable and secure to to go out and uh, speak and, and act? Yeah, absolutely. I think the number one thing for anyone who wishes to, to take to the streets peacefully on, 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 uh, on a matter that they value is to really be informed. There are many um, protest legal observer groups around the country and I would encourage anyone to get in contact with them in Melbourne. It's the fantastic people of the Melbourne Activist Legal Service, MELS, uh, and they will give you some really good tips and tricks on how to keep yourself safe, how to look after yourself in a protest and also how to look after the people you're with. And, and they're also very, very good at just taking the temperature and, and, and keeping people informed as to what might be developing during a protest. So really seek out these groups that are there to support you and they can also provide you assistance in the rare event that something goes wrong. Thank you very much. We'll uh, seek out that uh, information note and pop that up on our show notes as well. Thank you. was Senior Lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, David Mejia Canales, speaking about the democratic right of protest and the response of police at pro-Palestine rallies around the country. And just a reminder that a Speak Out for Palestine has been organised this Thursday, that's tomorrow, for community solidarity with Palestine. Uh, their gathering will be at 5pm at the Bell Street Reserve, corner of Sydney Road and Bell Street Coburg. And this Sunday, the 22nd of October at 12 noon, there will be another Palestine uh, rally gathering in solidarity at the State Library of Victoria. Uh, and then later next week, a vigil for Palestine to be held at Federation Square on Friday, not this Friday, but the following one. So that wraps up our coverage this morning. Um, just like to thank all our guests who have joined us and spoken to our listeners and to our listeners for tuning in. Yes, thanks very much. On a little lighter note uh, for listeners, uh, the Socceroos did win. Uh, they had a 2 win over New Zealand. So very good. The Soccer Ashes comes back to Australia. Uh, so listeners, you can celebrate that this morning and uh, that gets you going for this uh, Wednesday morning. Have a lovely one. Thank you very much, and we will see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. 
While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.